Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary as people migrated from the east. They found a valley in the land of Shemar and settled there. They said to each other, come and let us make oven-fired bricks. Others, well, they used bricks for stone and asphalt for motor. For motor. They said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Terry. Well, we're in Genesis chapters 9 to 11. Now, I am not someone who's ever loved exceptionalism. Or superlatives. I, I, I didn't get any superlatives when I was in high school or college. Maybe that's my issue. Nobody was like, this guy's the most likely to succeed in this area. Or the most likely to get married by 22 or whatever. Like, whatever the crazy, crazy superlatives were. I've never enjoyed those. And I've never enjoyed exceptionalism. Now, i got to caveat this. I'm very competitive. I like to do well. I don't particularly care about winning, though. And I don't particularly care about being the best. This is probably why I love bowling. So I, if you didn't know, I bowl with a team every Sunday night, and we're in a league. And the league can be competitive, but the cool thing about bowling is you're really just competing against yourself. Right? Every week, it's just about trying to do better than I did before and trying to improve on my game. And as long as I continue to improve my game, maybe we'll win as a team, maybe we won't. But we're there to have fun together and just bowl together. And it's not hyper-competitive because it's not about being the best. It's about doing as well as I can. And so when I say what I'm about to say, don't think that I'm putting down excellence. Excellence is good. Excellence is great. Pursuing the best that we can do is wonderful. But being the best, not a biblical value. Not a gospel value. Not a Jesus value. Being the best compared to everybody else in whatever situation, not a gospel value at all. Pursuing Jesus with all I've got, trying to do the best that I can for myself and my family, trying to live a God-honoring life and continually improve upon what has come before for me, those are good values. But the comparison game of trying to win and be the best all the time, not a biblical value. In fact... It's anti-biblical value. Today, we're going to, in our text, see the root of nationalism, the root of empire. And it's all about trying to be better than everybody else, including God. That's what this story in the text is about. And this is why my sermon had to change, because I was reading this. I was looking at the few verses that I had 
last week, and I realized they were part of this larger story that's leading us to the founding of the first empire and what was behind that. So where we left off last week, the flood had come. We talked about Noah and his ark and his family, and they they are on this ark for 150 days, and then the ark lands on top of a mountain, and there's a new Eden, and Noah is a kind of new Adam with a new family that's going to populate the earth. And they get out, and where I was going to go this week is the very first sin that happens right after they get out of the stinking boat. Right? They get out of the boat, and Noah starts to farm because, you know, his family needs food. And they're running short on rations after 150 days at sea. And so Noah starts to farm, and he grows a vineyard, and he makes some wine. So this isn't like right after he gets out of the boat, right? There's got to be time for, like, the grapes to grow and the wine to ferment and whatever. And Noah drinks some of his own wine, and he gets drunk. And he ends up falling asleep in his own tent naked, just passed out. For some reason, he was drunk, and he thought it would be cool to get naked. He was probably going to be with his wife. Only before that can happen, he passes out in his own tent. And then his son, Ham, comes walking into the tent to see his dad. Like He's going to call, hey, dad, yo! And he, he does that thing that we're all terrified our children will do. And he walks right in the tent, not knocking, right? There's no door. And so Ham walks in, and there's his dad naked, passed out drunk. And Ham's like, this is funny. This is, look at that's funny. And so Ham goes and tells his brothers, Shem and Japheth. Ham's like, Japheth, you won't believe what dad did. Come see this. And so Shem and Japheth are like, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. Now, we live in the United States. We live in a Western culture. Most of us are from a Western culture. We don't understand honor and shame cultures. We just don't get it. We don't understand what shame means in an honor and shame culture. But in an honor and shame culture, your honor and your shame are everything. They define who you are. And to shame someone is the absolute worst thing you can do. In many places, dying is better than shame. To be shamed publicly, I would rather be in the grave than to be shamed publicly before other people. And so when I tell you that Noah is shamed by what Ham has done, by Ham's walking in on him and then going and telling his brothers and making a mockery of Noah, you've got to understand that Noah might rather die than be shamed before his family this way. This is a major sin on Ham's part against his father. This is huge. He might as well have slapped him across the face. He might as well have declared, I'd rather you be dead, Dad, than to shame him this way in front of Ham's brothers. So Ham's brothers, being more honorable than Ham, are like, okay, um, I hear what you're saying, Ham. I don't really find this funny. So Shem and Japheth grab a blanket, and they walk backwards into Noah's tent until they get there. I mean, this has got to be awkward, right? Like, Noah's laying there naked. They can't see him because they're not going to shame their dad. So they're holding a blanket on either side. And then finally they get and they're like, okay, let's, I hope I got it over him. Right? And then they leave the tent. Because they would rather have all that awkwardness than shame their father. This is not a small thing. So when Noah wakes up, he learns what has happened. And he curses Ham, except he doesn't curse Ham. He curses Ham's grandson, Canaan. Ham's grandson, Canaan, 
is going to be the father of many nations. He's going to be the father of all kinds of different people groups. And so Noah curses Canaan. Now remember the context here. Genesis is being developed, it's being written down, it's being communicated during the Exodus. So the people of God, the Israelite children, they have been enslaved in Egypt, they're now headed to the promised land, and who are they going to have to drive out of the promised land when they get there? The Canaanites. They're going to have to drive out the children of Canaan. In fact, the land is called Canaan land. You might have sung these songs or these old spirituals. A lot of the old Negro spirituals come out of this idea of going to Canaan land, going to the promised land. So these children of Israel, these Hebrew people, they're leaving the land of Egypt and they're going to Canaan. And this story gives them the justification for driving out the Canaanites. It explains to them why the Canaanites are not honoring God and why it's okay for them to be moved out of their land so the children of Israel can move in and have a permanent home. And so it's setting them up. It's preparing them to move into the promised land and move the Canaanites out. In fact, God says later, I'm going to move them out little by little in front of you so then you can come in and take over the land. But they need to understand what's wrong with the Canaanites, that we got to move them on. And this is the reasoning, this curse on Canaan. And then we read in verse chapter 10, man, that chapter 10 is one of those Bible chapters that you usually like skip over because it's just genealogies. And so, 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 begat, so, and so, begat, so, and so, begat, so, and so. But in the context of Genesis 1 through 11, this is incredibly important because it shows the Hebrew people where all the peoples of the world come from, right? How the children of Noah spread out and they populate the land. And so you're looking at the kid, the children of Canaan and the children of Shem and the children of Japheth and all of the people groups that the children of Israel are going to encounter on the way to the promised land show up right here in this list. And so it's important for them. And now they know the ancestry of all the peoples that they're dealing with, where they come from. They know who their cousins are. Shem fathers the people who will ultimately father Abraham, who will ultimately be the father of the nation of Israel, right? So they say, we're descendants of Shem. And they can say, okay, those are our cousins. The Aramites, that's the Syrians, they're our cousins because they're descended from Shem too. And so they can look and they can see. And this is, this is kind of the founding myth of all the peoples of the world that the Israelites are, are encountering. Now, myth doesn't mean it's not true. It may or may not be literally true. It may or may not be historically true. Honestly, that doesn't matter right now. That's not the point. The point is to prepare the people of God to enter into the promised land and to give them a framework for understanding all of the people they're going to interact with, all the people they're going to encounter in the, in the world. And so we see this, this continuing on of the people of God. And right there in the middle of it, there's this guy named Nimrod. You ever called somebody a Nimrod? And as a kid, like, that was the cool thing to do. Like, you Nimrod, right? Did you know Nimrod is actually a biblical name? And here's the thing. Like, if you understood who Nimrod was, you wouldn't call anybody that insultingly. We read right here in Genesis chapter 10 that Nimrod was the first heroic person. Nimrod was this great grand figure. Nimrod founded the first empire. And so it, the Bible itself calls him like the, the first great hero. And he founded Babylon. And then he went on to found Nineveh, which is the Assyrian people. 
Nimrod is the father of empires. He's the father of empire itself. And that's how the people of God are supposed to conceive of him. Nimrod, this great heroic person of old, founded Babylon and Assyria and these great empires that the people of God would one time encounter. Only Nimrod, as strong and heroic as he might have been, the founding of empires was not a good thing in the end. Because we continue on in the genealogy, we continue on in this this liturgy of people, and we get to Genesis chapter 11. So we've read through all of these people. And then Genesis chapter 11 verse 1 goes back in time a little bit. Because you can't go through genealogies and kind of start then at the end, right? Because by the time you're at the bottom of the genealogy, you're like hundreds and hundreds of years in the future. So it goes back in time. Genesis 11.1 is a backtrack to a time when people shared a language. And if you read straight through this, you'd go, this is weird, because in Genesis chapter 10, when it labels all these people, it says they all had their own language. Like each of the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, at the end, they're like, and these peoples had their own land and their own language and their own culture. And then in Genesis 11.1, it says, and now at this time, the whole world shared a language. And you're like, wait a minute, God. Hold up. This is one of those contradictions that people pull out to prove that this isn't true. So you got to understand that 11.1 is doing one of two things. Either it's going back in time to a time when all the people of the world shared one language, or it's going back to one specific of these people groups and saying this people group shared a language. And either way that you read it, it's going back to the origins of one of these people groups. In fact, to the people of Nimrod, the people of that guy who founded this empire. And in 11.1, we read that there was this time when in this particular land with these people, they all shared a language. And they did what all empires do. They said, we're going to build a city to increase our fame so that the whole world will know who we are, that we are the greatest, that we are the best. We will build this shining city and it will rival God himself. That's what it means when they say they're going to build this tower to the heavens. They're going to rival God. And there's a funny little bit in this. Like, if you read Hebrew, there are all these jokes in these verses that you miss because we don't get them in in English. We read it very seriously. But in Hebrew, there's all this wordplay back and forth. And one of the wordplays is that the people say, we're going to build a tower to the heavens. And then it says, and God had to come down to look at their little tower. They're not going to rival God. God knows this, right? There's no way they're going to reach to the heavens. And so God has to leave heaven and come down to look at this little tower these people are building in all of their hubris and in all of their pride and in all of their greed. And so God comes down. And God says to his counsel, to these other supernatural beings who are with him, his angels and his his rulers of the heavens, and he says, you know... Their ambition has no ends. And if they're really united, they're going to be able to do pretty much whatever they want. And the implication is that's not a good thing because what they want is not good. What they want is to rival God. What they want is to take over the world and to be a standard against God. They want to be their own gods. They want to be the nation, the empire that rules over everything, who has a great name and no longer give glory to the God who made them. And so if they're united and can do anything they want, they're only going to drive the world into further evil. And we're going to end up in the same place we were right before the flood. And so God says, we got to do something about this. 
So he takes these people who are working on this tower and he makes them all speak a different language. Can you imagine that? Like one morning, like you're on a work site, you're on a job site, you're just going to work, you get your hard hat on, you're like, okay, we're going to build this ziggurat, we're going to build this tower, right? I'm going to shave me some rock today. And you get to the work site and you say, hey, Jimbo. And Jimbo says, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Wait a minute, what, what just happened? So they all get to the work site and all of a sudden, nobody can speak the same language. And they're all just babbling at each other. And so, this place, this unfinished tower becomes called Babel. Our translation calls it Babylon. I haven't read a scholar yet who doesn't think that this, these verses, this passage is about the founding of Babylon. You've got to understand, in the Bible, Babylon becomes the symbol for everything evil. Babylon becomes the symbol for everything wrong in the world. For all the oppressive empires of the world, Egypt is a Babylon. Assyria is a Babylon. When Jesus comes on the scene, Rome is a Babylon. So by the time we get to the book of Revelation, Babylon represents all those powers of the world that are standing opposed to God and his people. The biblical image of Babylon is the image of the empire that wants to take over the world and rival God. And so Genesis 11.4 becomes kind of the motto for every empire that has ever existed. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. This has been the motto for every empire that has ever existed in the history of the world, including the one we live in now. Let us be the best. Let us rival God. Let us rule the world because we're the best. We have the best ideas. We have the best notions. This is the motto of every nationalist person ever. I realize I'm treading on thin ice with some people here. But the fact is, biblically, there is one holy nation. There is one godly people. And they belong to the kingdom of God. And every other nation in the history of the world has set itself up to oppose God. Every single one. That's the biblical model for the world. There's one holy people. There's one holy nation. And what this text in Genesis is doing is setting us up Showing us Nimrod, the founder of empires, the the one who began Babylon. Showing us the foundations of Babylon, of all the empires and nations of the world that oppose God. And it's setting us up to meet Abraham, who will be the father of the people of God. The father of the nation that will be on God's side. The founder of the nation that will represent God to all of the other nations of the world, to all of the Babylons. The people who will stand in God's place and stand for him to be the kingdom of God in the world and to show the world what it is to be a righteous nation. We're being set up here to view all the nations of the world as opposed to God except for the children of Abraham. The people called out by God to be his holy people and to show the world what it is to follow him. 
Now, throughout history, throughout the history of the world, some of those nations and empires have been better than others. There is no doubt about that. And we live in one of the best that we can live in now. I'm grateful for where we live. I'm grateful for what we get to enjoy. But it doesn't change the fact that my nation is a human nation, is a human creation, and I am a citizen of the kingdom of God before anything else. And so that's where we go. We, we, we look at Babel and we see God separate the people and say, look, if they're united in their evil, they will overtake the world with it. Nothing will stop them. So I must scatter them. And scatter them he does. And we have nation warring against nation and we have the people of God called out and so imperfectly following him that they become just like all the other nations of the world. They become opposed to God and his purposes. They follow the pagan places. They oppress their own people. They are not the light to the nations that they are supposed to be. Enter Jesus. Jesus comes in as the king of God's people, as the rightful king of Israel, as the only king who can truly lead the people to be faithful to Yahweh, to be faithful to God, and to fulfill their mission of being a light to the nations. Because you see, even though God sets up and says, look, every other nation in the world is Babylon. Every other nation in the world is trying to wrestle control from me and trying to take my place. I still want them. In Exodus, God will tell his people when he's founding his nation, your job is to be priests for the nations. Your job is to go out and to pray for the nations, to show them the way it is to me. It's to overcome their evil with my good. That's the role of the people of God in the world. God doesn't look at the Babylons of the world and say, shame on you and just destroy them. God longs for them to come to him. He wants them. That's why he sets up Israel in the first place. So when Jesus comes in as the king of God's people, as the king of Israel, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, all you who live under the oppression of the world and of the Romes and the Babylons of the world. Come to me, all you who are broken and weary and tired, and I will give you rest. And Jesus opens his arm as the king of Israel and says, all you Gentiles who have felt out of place, come to me. All you who have been on the outskirts, all you who can't keep all the laws, all you who can't be ritually pure, all of you who the religious system has cast out, you come to me. You have been in Babylon. Come into my kingdom where there is rest and peace and hope and healing. Come to me, Jesus preaches. And then in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has died, he has risen again, and he's promised to send the Holy Spirit of God. And here we see in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost, Pentecost is a normal Jewish feast. It is not a particularly Christian holiday. Pentecost is a normal Jewish feast, but it was a feast when people from all over the Roman Empire would have been gathered in Jerusalem, speaking different languages. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together. That is, the followers of Jesus were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were devout Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. 
when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Here on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit of God to fill his people, to empower the people who are going to lead his kingdom, we see the reversal of Babel. Jesus says, my kingdom is not a Babylon. My kingdom is a place where everyone in the entire world can come and be united together. My kingdom is a place where everyone from every background and whatever language you speak will come and I will speak to you in your heart language. I will speak to you in a way that you understand. I will walk with you through the circumstances of your life. Welcome into my kingdom. All of you who have been dwelling in Babylon, welcome to the kingdom of God where your language is spoken, where you are understood, where you are welcomed with open arms. Jesus sets up his kingdom as an anti-Babylon. Sets up his kingdom as an alternative to all of the nations of the world. Sets up his kingdom as an anti-Rome. A place where you're no longer defined by the language that you speak or the culture that you carry, but you are defined by the king that you serve. And the savior who has purchased you. That's the kingdom of God that we enter into when we bow the knee to King Jesus. When we give our allegiance to King Jesus above everything else, that's the kingdom that we enter. We're no longer citizens of Babylon. We're no longer citizens just of the world. Now our citizenship is first with King Jesus, which means it's going to be really hard to nail us down anyway. I'm going to say something really controversial. A Christian cannot follow Jesus and be partisan. You cannot. A Christian cannot follow Jesus and be blindly partisan. Because there is no political group, there is no organization in the world that adequately reflects who Jesus is and perfectly reflects his agenda and purpose in the world. A Christian is a follower of Jesus pursuing his kingdom and his purposes and his agenda above everything else. And that's not going to fall in line with any particular group. We are in line with Jesus and him first. And we seek his purposes above everything else. A Christian can't be blindly partisan because Jesus has called us to something far better. He's called us to be exiles. He said to us, look, where you live is Babylon. It is not the kingdom of God. No country on earth is the kingdom of God. No nation, no political organization, no citizenship you have is stronger or more potent than the citizenship you have with King Jesus in his kingdom. And so he calls us together 
He speaks our language. He calls us into his family, into his kingdom to be his citizens, to pursue his agenda of shalom for the world. And he gives us a new passion and a new mission. Way back in the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah was a prophet. He was a, man, Jeremiah had it rough. He had a rough, rough life. God called Jeremiah when Jeremiah was a young man and was like, hey dude, you're going to suffer for me, cool? And Jeremiah was like, no, uh, no. And God's like, no, no, you are, it's, it's good. And so God starts to speak through Jeremiah. In fact, early on in the book of Jeremiah, we're going to talk about this in a few weeks. God, uh, uh, Jeremiah says, God, I ate your words and they dwelled in me and then I spoke them out. And God tells Jeremiah, eat my words, consume my words and then share them with the world. And that gets Jeremiah into a lot of trouble. Because if you know anything about the prophets of the Old Testament, man, they were always calling out Israel for not being the community that God wanted them to be, for not being that nation that was an example to Babylon but instead being just like all the Babylons. And so Jeremiah is prophesying, and Jeremiah is living in Jerusalem, in the capital city at that time of Judah. And God had sent the Babylonian people to come and take over Judah, to take the people into exile. And so Jeremiah is sitting back in Jerusalem, and he's writing a letter to all of the exiles who have been taken to Babylon, all the residents of Jerusalem that the Babylonians had taken away. And these are the words that Jeremiah writes in his letter to the Jews in exile. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles. I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. These are the instructions of God to the people of God living in exile in Babylon. And today, as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, we are living in Babylon. The United States is not special in God's eyes. It is not some special nation that has special status. We are not more holy than other places in the world. I'm glad to live here, but I live in Babylon as a citizen of God's kingdom. And God's instructions to his children living in Babylon are as potent for me today as they were for the Israelites 2,800 years ago. We live in Babylon, but that does not mean that we just don't engage with the world. It doesn't mean we go into this little holy bubble and we live our own life. We create our own little government and our own little place to live apart from everything else. Being an exile living in Babylon should make me the best citizen of Babylon. Living in exile in Babylon should make me the best kind of citizen because my identity is not tied to Babylon. My welfare is not tied to some political agenda of Babylon. The goodness that I bring has nothing to do with the politics of Babylon. God says to his people living in exile, be the best citizens. Start businesses. Pursue the common good. Pray that Babylon thrives. Your enemies, pray that Babylon thrives. Get married, have kids, grow families. Be the best citizens of Babylon, pursuing my purposes 
pursuing the good of your neighbors. And by that, you will be a blessing to the Babylon in which you live. We are citizens of the kingdom of God living in Babylon. United not by our language or our culture or our skin color or our income or any other identifier or demographic related and brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ and by his kingship as we follow him. We are brought together as citizens of his kingdom to pursue his agenda in the world and to be the best stinking citizens we can be of this world as we pursue the good of our community and the good of our neighbors, not for the glory of our nation, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. That's why we live. That's why we love and we get married and have babies and start businesses and pay taxes and do all the things that good citizens do for the glory of Jesus and the good of our neighbors because God has spoken our language and called us into his kingdom to make Jesus the center, to make Jesus first. That's why the Holy Spirit comes and empowers us to be citizens of God's kingdom. Let's be the best citizens we can be because all the glory is for Jesus. The motto of Jesus' kingdom stands in direct opposition to the motto of empire. The empire that says, let's build a tower to heaven and make a great name for ourselves. The motto of the King Jesus and the motto of his people is, let's be the best we can be for the glory of Jesus and the good of Babylon. That's why we're brought together. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for calling us together in this kingdom for making us citizens of your kingdom to live in the Babylons of the world and to be a breath of fresh air, to be the scent of roses, to be the scent of the garden to a broken and dying world, to come and say, all glory belongs to King Jesus. God, would you make us amazing citizens of your kingdom and of the place we live, pursuing the good of our community, the good of our neighbors, not being pinned down to any one particular political agenda, but Lord, being devoted and committed to shalom, to the peace and the wholeness of God in our communities. Let everything we do be for the glory of Jesus and the good of our neighbors as we pursue your good above everything else. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.